Jesus made each star in heaven. He created earth and sea. He's the keeper of all knowledge. What is past and what will be. Yet he offers his great wisdom so you will not lose your way. Like a lamp it glows, every step it shows. You can know his will each day. Trust his word. Trust his word. All God's promises are true. Trust his word. When your pathway disappears, when your joy gives way to tears, when you're plagued by doubts and fears, trust his word. <clears throat> He is not a distant stranger. He can be your closest friend. And he'll always listen closely when you share your heart with him. Jesus walks the path beside you. He has been there all along. And he'll guide your feet when your step is weak and your strength is almost gone. Trust his word. Trust his word. All God's promises are true. doubts and fears trust his word trust his word trust his word So I wanted to give the men who went to the retreat this past weekend an opportunity to just share some of the things that they learned, the, the lessons that stood out to them and burdens of their heart. So I'd like to give you guys all an opportunity, if you don't mind coming forward, if you plan on giving a testimony tonight, you can wait up here maybe on the front row and then we'll just take turns one by one giving those. <clears throat> Pastor Carsis, do you want to lead the way? Yes. 
when Pastor Shirk asked if I would uh, like to share a testimony tonight, I said I would be very happy to do that. And one thought came to my mind very, very quickly. I, I really, I am glad that I was able to go. Uh, I, I enjoyed it very much. It was a really wonderful time together. And the thing that I just want to share tonight was something that um, I don't remember if uh, Jim brought it out, uh, uh, Brother Jim Van Gelderen or Wayne, I think it was uh, Jim. But uh, somewhere in the middle of his message, he was giving different reasons that we ought to want to pray, and we should pray more, and we should pray uh, for God's will to be done, and we should join with others in praying, and some of the, the importance of praying. And he, he made this statement. He said, there's a passage back in the Old Testament where we're told that God was looking for an intercessor, someone to plead for, someone to intercede for, uh, for a spiritual need, for lost, lost, the lost. And he said, you know, th th tragically, it says he found none. And he said, I wonder today how many unsaved people there are where there's not a single person to intercede for them. There's no one to pray for them. There, there's no one that would, that would be a believer that would know that they're lost and would, would plead for their salvation. So he said, just think about that. You know, whom do you know that is unsaved or you think they may be unsaved or probably are unsaved, and if you don't pray for them, who do you think will? Who's, who's going to intercede for them if you don't? And immediately... Four people came to my mind really fast. I thought, yeah, I wonder, I wonder who's praying for their salvation. I might be the only one. And that was a challenge to me to, to think about somebody that is not a believer going to hell unsaved, and there's nobody praying for them, and there should be somebody. That was a challenge to me, the thing that stood out at the retreat. So one of the sessions I thought was um, very cogent, brought some things back to my mind and solidified some, some things as well. The title of the session was 100 Zero. How much of your life is Jesus and how much is you? And the way that it was um, presented was, uh, it had a, a really solid scriptural basis um, but we just heard the song about um, trust in him and how many times during the day do we not trust in him a little tiny bit for some little thing in, in just a fleeting moment or more than a fleeting moment maybe a few hours of uh, distress and worry um, those kind of things are not what Jesus wants us to do. And the point was made that, well, you can't keep from uh, worrying and having problems and speaking ill to people. Uh, in uh, Sunday school, we're um, uh, studying about uh, uh, First Peter chapter 3. Husbands, uh, love your wives as Jesus loved the church. Well, how many of us husbands are perfect at loving our wives as Jesus loved the church and treating our wives as Jesus loved the church. So we can't really do that well. We can't really not worry well. And so the point was made that we need Jesus all the time, that really it's his strength, 100% of his strength, because we, 
essentially don't have any, not really. We don't, we don't have strength. Strength of character, strength of will, it's going to fail. Um, and so that was uh, uh, a very, very poignant uh, part of the, the, um, the sessions for me. If you were to ask me what would be the central theme or what was emphasized uh, with, the, with the prayer meeting, bended knee that we attended, and that, it's just a simple prayer, two-way conversation with the Lord. And you know so many times we forget that. I don't know if this has happened to you. I know it has happened to me many times that you wonder if the Lord is answering your prayer. Uh, what is the, the sticking point? What didn't go right? And we learned that you don't want to run a program, you don't want to run a systematic thing, but it's good to have just a, a basic knowledge of what you need to pray when you're praying. Because if there's anything I've learned in this life is that God answers 100% prayer. It's either a yes, or it may be no, or wait on my divine timing. And uh, I've seen prayers that took 25 to almost 30 years, but they were answered. So we just got to be patient for the Lord. But to be able to include all the things that we want to pray about, we of course we want to go and, and, and talk about the Lord and, and adoration to him. And we want to bring the things to him. We've got to confess our sin. We don't want to forget all those elements so that we make sure that we are having that two-way conversation. Because so many times in prayers, it's one way. Uh, but that was probably the biggest thing I learned, that it's a two-way conversation with the Lord. So uh, going to this retreat, I thought it was just going to be the, the normal kind of like camp, kind of like a, just the normal kind of, kind of a deal. But when um, on Friday evening when we had our corporate prayer time, when I tell you I felt the Lord like I've never felt the Lord before, it, it, it touched me like, like never before. And it has um, changed me for the better. And uh, on uh, Saturday, we had a, he gave us a booklet of things to pray in an hour. And I ended up, this morning, I woke up, I was like, you've got to do this. I ended up praying an hour and a half this morning. And I'm very uh, thankful that God allowed me to go to this retreat. It has changed my life for the better. Uh, let me share you, with you one of the passages that we started off uh, Friday night, Matthew 18, verse um, 18 through 20. And Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall, do, shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them by the Father who is in heaven. For where two or more, two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Um, I went up to the camp, to the retreat. Um, Pastor Short mentioned it what, about a month or two ago. I was really excited um, just for the opportunity to get away from all the distractions that were, have been surrounding me for the last couple of months. Um, and I found that quiet. I found that stillness there. Um, I wasn't really looking for what... Um, God, I think, shared with everybody that went. Um, 
those verses that I just read um, are promises from God that say that he will, that there is incredible power in prayer. And I think a lot of times we forget, I personally sometimes forget how powerful prayer can be. And it was just an amazing thing Friday night to see the Holy Spirit move um, amongst every man and every child that was there. Um, it was just a, a really neat thing to see the, the brothers there to be um, united in spirit in prayer. Um, it's, it's a, it was a really neat thing to see I mean, were there 50 to 70 men there, 60 men that were there, and most of them confessed sin out in the open in corporate prayer. Um, I haven't seen that in a long, long time. But it's powerful. It prepares your heart for communication with the Father. And I would just, um, there's a lot of things that I think are going to be a benefit. There's eight of us that went, um, and we all were challenged to spend at least an hour straight in prayer. And I think that if, if we stay true to that, and if others begin that habit, that God can use this church in, in a mighty way, and I'm excited to see it. I think for me, I wanted to bring something none of the other men have talked about, but what Jim talked about was, was probably the best way. I was three, and I experienced the, the Greek word symphony, and how when you have an orchestra, all these, yeah, it's not on, sorry. <laughs> so, when you have an orchestra, you have all these different instruments who are playing different notes, they're, they're, but they're all playing the same direction. Kind of goes along with this morning's message, right? Being united. We're all different. We're all playing different sounds, but we're united in the message that we're, and the pursuit, the direction that we're going towards. And the, and the concept here is that if we, if two or three people are gathered together in Christ's authority, in Christ's name, and they are in symphony together, then there God is with them in their midst. And really just that first corporate prayer session, that, to me that inspired me. To see people who are taking sin seriously and confessing it, just like you said. Because the very first lesson was on the concept, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Which is exactly what I was going to be teaching on in Sunday school today. 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving, giving on, yeah, probably should memorize it, but giving honor unto them as unto the weaker vessel. And, and as being heirs of the grace of life. And then the last phrase, that your prayers be not hindered. And so often we don't take sin seriously, but we want to come to church. We want to pray. We want to give our offerings. We want to sing songs. We want to pretend like we're worshiping God. But God's not hearing us, you know, because we're not, we're not right with him. We've got sin in our lives, and it's keeping us from our relationship with him. And so Brother, Brother Jim Van Gelderen, he preached on, um, he primarily focused a lot on porn, that first message, but he dealt with two things, selfishness and secrecy. We don't confess sin, and we, don't, we aren't open with it, because we don't live in the light. We don't want other people to know what we're struggling with. We don't want Jesus to know. We don't want to face it. We don't want to look at it. And when it's hidden in the dark, we don't deal with it. 
And it, that's one of the biggest hindrances to our prayer lives, I think, that, that we face day by day. And the statistics on, on pornography, I'm going to keep everything G-rated here, but the statistics on pornography are pretty high for Christians even. People coming into church, the men who struggle with pornography, is, it's a really high number. And why is that the case? Because we've gotten, we've gotten comfortable with selfishness, with gratifying myself, and with secrecy, with hiding it. We become good liars, you know? And as long as those things are true in our lives, God cannot commune with us in prayer because we are treasuring, we are regarding iniquity in our hearts. So that was, that was a challenge uh, just coming into it. And again, it, it kind of excited me, re-energized me for Sunday school this morning because I'm like, yes, I'm planning on preaching this. It'll, it'll be good in Sunday school. Okay, so let's go ahead and uh, open our Bibles to Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter number 2. So my message tonight is going to be tracing a theme through the entire book of Acts. A lot of times it's, it's great to preach expositorily or textually through a book of the Bible so that you're covering everything that's in it. But there are emphases sometimes that we miss when you're reading line by line and you miss the big picture, how everything ties together. Tonight's message is going to be on the concept of church growth, okay? And this is going to be a two-part message. Now, I'm not deceiving myself. Harvest Hills is not a megachurch, right? Okay? We don't have a balcony up there with thousands of people. For you people on Facebook Live, there is no balcony there with millions of people sitting back here. And I know we can't turn the camera around and show you. But Harvest Hills is not a megachurch. And, and I think there's a benefit to that, you know? And, and when we talk about church growth, a lot of churches, they focus on numbers, okay? And this message, it's going to deal with numbers. I want you to know that from the very beginning, okay? But I also want you to know this. I will never place an emphasis on numbers above everything else in this ministry because it, it is not the emphasis that we ought to be having. A lot, I've, I grew up in churches that soul winning was good, and I'm, I rejoice in that. I rejoice in that background that my, the churches I grew up in were good soul winning churches, and I learned from that. But the, the downside to that is I also grew up in churches that lied about how many people got saved. They'd come back and say, oh, we saw 19 people saved tonight. Well, where, where are they? Did they ever show up at church? Did they ever give up the sin that's in their lives and evidence that faith that they, that they profess to have? Or are they still shacking up with their girlfriend and, and pretending to be Christians now? Okay? And, and that's, that's the background that, that some of the churches I grew up in were like, you know? And so there's a danger when we emphasize numbers to the exclusion of everything else. But when we look through the book of Acts, numbers are not unimportant. Because throughout the book of Acts, there are what we call the summary passages that Luke interjects. He tells a story, and then he summarizes what God's doing because of that story. And it's a repeated pattern throughout the entire book of Acts. And one of the things he keys in on in all of those summary passages is how the Lord grew his church. Because that's what Acts is about, right? God started a church. He started a movement. He started a body of believers. In Acts chapter 2, he empowered them with his spirit. And he commissioned them to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and onto the uttermost parts of the earth. And the book traces that progress of how the church grew from 120 people in a little room in Jerusalem 
to millions of people across the entire face of the earth over many different years, but it traces how God did that work. And that is the primary emphasis that Luke was trying to get across when he wrote the book of Acts, to show how God had done a work to grow his church. And ultimately, I think that's probably the difference. The churches that, t- that preach numbers, and that's su- such a big focus to them, they are trying to grow and to accomplish numbers in their own strength rather than allowing God to do the work and leaving the results to God. But as we look at all of these passages that deal with the topic of numbers, there's going to be a pattern that you're going to see. God will do something amazing in the life of the church to grow them spiritually. And when that happens, then the result is that they will see that numerical increase. And so what's happened in a lot of churches is they've put the cart before the horse. They've sought numerical increase and ignored church growth, like spiritual growth. They have ignored the spiritual lives of their people, and so you end up with a bunch of baby Christians in these churches, and they don't teach, they don't exhort, they don't encourage, and they don't, they don't grow the people within their churches. And so I, wanna, I want us to focus on that pattern, but just, just some thoughts here in the beginning. Um, sometimes, like I said, we think that size doesn't matter, but let me give you an illustration of where it does, okay? Let's say you are a single person at Harvest Hills. We have some of those, right? Okay. How many of them are there? Yeah, okay. It's one, two, three. Three, any more? Four, okay. Nathan, are you here? And the teenagers, you guys don't count, okay? So, you know, you're not marriageable yet, okay? So, but if you were a single person and you walked into a church that's got one single person and like maybe you're looking for a spouse and they're dead ugly, okay? So are you probably going to want to stay in that church? You know, if you have no prospects of friends or a spouse in this church, and that's what you want in your future most likely when, you, when you're single, are you usually going to stay there? Not normally. God has to have done something else in your heart to keep you here. Haley, I'm so grateful for you staying at Harvest Hills Baptist Church. Daniel, so many years that he was single and he was faithful and he served Daniel, there you are. Okay, you're still single right now because there's no joy over there. Okay, so I am grateful for your faithfulness in spite of the fact that maybe friends left. They went other places to, get fr- to go with other friends, right? You can understand that. You can understand where people are coming from, why they would feel that way. So size matters in a way because the bigger the church you have, the more likely it is you're able to have friends and to find connection with other people, right? So it's not unimportant, But on the flip side, you can have churches that are so big that it's impossible to pastor them. One man cannot pastor any more than 200 people in a church. That's statistics, okay? Once you have more than 200 people in your church, you've got to have multiple pastors to to accomplish it. It will not happen. And, uh, and, And so you can get so big that the people lose sight. They have no connection with their pastor, no relationship. And, they, and the pastor can't effectively minister to them. And so there, there's, there's extremes to both sides of this right here. But a healthy church is a reproducing church, and it is a growing church. Imagine this. Imagine you had a baby who was born, and let's say seven, seven pounds, eight ounces. How many inches was Rachel? Anybody, anybody know? 18 inches. Okay, good. See, I don't know how, how big babies normally are. So 18 inches. And for 25 years, that baby never grew from 18 inches. They stayed 18 inches and seven pounds, however many ounces, the rest of their life. Is that a healthy baby? (laughs) So, yeah. 
Well, you're probably still changing its diapers if it's still like that. So. But no, it's not healthy. We don't need a specialist. We don't need a doctor to come in and say, I think there's something wrong with your child. You know, We look at that baby, we know there is something wrong. You know, And it's the same thing with churches. Churches are intended to reproduce, to see souls saved, and to grow. That, that's a natural byproduct of a healthy, living church. And so it is legitimate to look at that and say, why are we not growing? Well, something is wrong. There's a disconnect somewhere. Now, I, I, I have to acknowledge this. Jeremiah preached his whole entire ministry, and how many people did he see turn to the right and get, get right with God? Zero. So ultimately, the results are up to God. We can water, we can, we, can, we can work, we can do what we are supposed to do, but God has to give the increase. But that doesn't diminish this idea that I think God wants to honor the faithfulness of his people when they will do what they ought to be doing, and he will give them fruit. It may not be thousands of people, but he will give us fruit. I'm grateful for my children who've gotten saved. That's fruit, you know? I'm grateful for the, I've, I haven't led a million people to the Lord, but I've, I've led some, and I'm grateful for the ones that the Lord has allowed me to lead to the Lord. But that is what a healthy church should be striving for. Eventually, I'll be talking about uh, the marks of a healthy church, and I think this is one of them, that we are trying to reproduce. We are trying to grow. And so, uh, ultimately, though, when we talk about church growth, there are a lot of different models that the world has out there for how to accomplish church growth. And back in the 90s, you had what, these big church growth models. Um, new evangelical churches bloomed, at, which surprisingly, if you, if you know your history, independent fundamental Baptists used to be the biggest churches in America. Okay? The, it wasn't until the 90s that that kind of switched around and new evangelical churches became the mega churches. But these were some of the things that they, they emphasized in their church growth models. They emphasized the seekers. Okay, so what is a seeker? A seeker is somebody who is not committed. They're looking. Okay, that's what a seeker is. Well, what that became in churches was commercialism, marketing. How can I market myself to the people? That's, that's ultimately what their church growth models became. So seeker-sensitive churches sought to give people something that they wanted. You want this type of music? Okay, we're going to do it. And they took polls. They literally took polls and said music do you want in your churches? And that's what they put in their because they were seeking to please and please the people who they wanted to reach out to in the community. Whether it was right or wrong, that's what they were trying to do. And so worship became contemporary, but in turn morphed into entertainment. And preaching on sin became less, because if you're dealing with seekers and you say you're going to hell because you haven't turned from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, what are they going to do? <laughs> They're going to run the other way, usually, unless the Lord has been working in their heart and convicted them of their sin. Okay? And so they, they said, oh, we don't want to be offensive. I think, again, Joel Steen. We don't want to offend people. Okay? These people also, the churches did whatever they needed to do to get people in and never asked, was this right? And is this consistent with the character of God? What God would have me to do? And the, the idea here is that the ends justify the means. I will do whatever it takes to get people in here. I know some, uh, Pastor Carsey's and I were talking about it on the way, way home yesterday. There are preachers out there who are good, solid preachers, and you think they believe almost exactly the way that we do. But then you, and you listen to them on the radio, and that's all you hear, and so you're excited. 
but then you would walk into their churches and they got a rock band and all this kind of stuff out there. You would never imagine that they would be doing that, you know, <laughs> because there's a disconnect. They wanted a platform, so they marketed something and it got them an audience. And yes, it worked, but was it right? Okay. And that, that was how, that was one of the things that church growth models emphasized. Another thing is they, they, they emphasize challenging the controllers who want to sidetrack the ministry. I think of Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill Church, okay? If you know anything about that, there's a big scandal with this church. They kicked him out because he was an abusive pastor, basically, is what it all comes down to. And he hasn't changed. He went down to Arizona um, and doing the same thing down there, okay? And he seems successful. He's a very good speaker. He's, uh, he can study the passage and he can find a way to relate it to people in their daily lives. But he was very abusive as a preacher. And this, this is why, right here, this was the mentality. If, let's say, Timothy comes into church and he wants to... He wants to change the church in a way, so he's going around and he's coming up with these, these other ideas, and he comes to the pastor and says, hey, pastor, you should consider this. Okay, this, this philosophy was, I need to shut him down. Okay, I need to eliminate him. Doesn't matter what he says. I need to get rid of that guy. That was a church growth philosophy. Get rid of the negative naysayers. The people who are, who are holding you back, get rid of them. Just weed them out, basically. Okay, and I think... Maybe if there's sin, obviously, you should probably do that, but, but that was their philosophy, and I don't, think, I don't think that was right either, because they basically made dictators. They got rid of anybody who would ever say anything to correct them and who might challenge them about the way that they were doing things or thinking. They eliminated committees because they slow you down. I've heard this one in independent Baptist churches, okay? They eliminated committees because they slow you down, and what does that do? Centralizes the power in one person. And everything becomes dependent on that, on that one man. And then the, th the fourth thing I wrote down here is they transformed the clergy from professionals into approachable, likable role models. Okay? I can empathize here. I am not the CEO of Chick-fil-A, and I probably never would be. I'm, I don't have that personality, to be honest. Okay? I could be more professional. But on the flip side, they emphasize being approachable and likable. What's wrong with that? If you want to pastor people, you need to be able to be likable and approachable to people, to minister in their lives. But what this became is a celebrity focus. Most of these mega churches, they, have, they have now have TV screens and they have a celebrity pastor. Everybody knows them. They've got their $3,000 Yeezy tennis shoes on. And every, everybody looks at this. You know what those are, Jim? Okay, so. But they're, they're, they're celebrities. They've marketed, again, it goes back to this idea, they've marketed themselves. And if you can just market yourself as a preacher, you will grow this great church. And if you can become a celebrity, you can have that social media presence, and you can get people to like you, and, to, and then you'll have people following you, and you'll have, you'll have this greater ministry, and you'll grow your church. <clears throat> And that was kind of the mentality that these churches had. And oftentimes, numerical growth comes at the cost of spiritual growth in these churches. One lesson I learned from Chick-fil-A, Truett Cathy, this is a quote, you must get better before we get bigger, okay? At Burger King, we always asked the CEOs of Burger King, why is it that, uh, that we aren't uh, getting paid more? They're like, well, and, and we'd say, well, Chick-fil-A, look at what they're paying Chick-fil-A employees. And their answer was, Chick-fil-A makes millions of dollars more money, so that's why they can pay their employees more and do all this stuff. Well, here's the thing. Chick-fil-A didn't start making millions of dollars. They started doing the right thing and making customers happy. 
And then they made the millions of dollars, right? It goes the other way around. You got to make the investment. You got to be better before you get bigger. And you could really summarize this whole, this whole series tonight and next Sunday, Sunday's message with that phrase right there. We've got to get better before we get bigger. <clears throat> so we're going to look at, first of all, in the first three passages where church growth is talked about. We've already covered two of them, so I'm going to I'm going to highlight what I want to emphasize from these texts, but we're not going to re-preach every detail of them. So Acts chapter 2 is going to be our first one, okay? So the first point here is this. A growing church will be a spirit-filled church. You look back at Acts chapter number 2, and verse number, verse number 11 talks, begins talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit that were poured out. Um, the gift of tongues was given, and it says they, that they spoke in different languages, the Phryg of Phrygia, Pamphylia, and Egypt, and parts of Libya, about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And so the Holy Spirit came down on the church at Pentecost and empowered them, and they spoke in tongues, which we've talked about before, is literal languages that they were speaking, the languages of these nations. And, they, and it says here that they spoke the wonderful works of God. And we talked about how the, the filling of the Spirit has two, two products that we see in this text. Not the, not the signs and the wonders, but the main things that the Holy Spirit produces is praise and preaching. Okay? That, that's what the Holy Spirit produced in this early church in Acts chapter number, chapter number 2. And then in the middle section, Peter preaches his message and he calls the men of Israel to repent. In verse 14 says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. And then verse 38, he concludes his message. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for or because of the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So how do we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost? We repent. And Peter and Luke, throughout the book of Acts, uses repentance and faith interchangeably because essentially they are almost synonyms. They are opposite sides of the same coin. Repentance is turning from your sin, Faith is turning to God. It's the same action, placing your faith in Jesus Christ. So repent and then be baptized. Why should you be baptized? Because of the remission of sins. Because you have had your sins forgiven, you should be baptized. And then what, what's the result? Ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Verse 39, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all them that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And then verse 40 and 41, we're going to key in here on this first point. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word, so they were saved, were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. It's two key, two key thoughts there. There were added. Luke is, Luke is emphasizing more people are being added to this church. How many of them? 3,000. A spirit-filled church in the book of Acts that boldly preached and praised God resulted in 3,000 people being added to the church in one day. So they went from 120 
to 3,120, and those are rough numbers. Those are estimates, okay? Anytime you see round numbers in the Bible, understand it's most likely a rounded number, okay? So these are rough, rough numbers that are being given here, okay? So they went from 120 to 3,120, but God added to the church. So a spirit-filled church that was praising and preaching God's word saw growth in the church, <clears throat> and, the, and this, is, this is where it all has to start, um, because if we are going to see growth in our churches, first of all, we have to be filled with God's Spirit. We have to have God's Spirit. You can preach, you can go soul winning, you can do all of those things, but unless the Spirit is in it, it is nothing, right? It is worthless. You're just wasting your time. You have to have the Holy Spirit working within you. And 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 8. I'm, I don't have a whole lot of time because I'm out of time. <laughs> so, okay. So I'm just going to read these verses here. I have planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So that neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. You can't save anybody. Only God can. I can't grow this church. No matter what methods I come up with, I can't grow this church and glorify God on my own. I have to have his Holy Spirit working in me to do that. So a spirit-filled church sees growth. Then last Sunday, we preached the last part of this text in verses 41 through 47, but let's reread verse 47, okay? Verse 47, talking about the community life of the church. How did they function as a church, and then how did they live together as believers in Christ, verse 47 says, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Well, why does Paul put that, or Luke put that there? Why does he say the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved? He is drawing the implication that their community life as believers resulted in church growth. The Lord added. How often did he add? Daily. When the church was living the way that they should, they were glorifying God in the way that they were living with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, God added to the church. <clears throat> so imagine a, lo a lost person walks into church and sees a bunch of people who are fighting, bickering, gossiping, and uh, there's just tension in the air, right? Is that person drawn to Christ or repelled? Repelled, right? They don't want to be there. They don't want anything to do with that church. This just emphasizes this aspect that if we are going to see church growth, we've got to be a church that practices biblical community and fellowship with one another. So a growing church will be a church that experiences real community with the brothers and sisters in Christ. Third point is that a growing church will be a holy church. Acts chapter number five. Acts chapter number five. Now I'm just going to summarize the story here. Story is Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira, they saw Barnabas sell everything that he had, take the money and give it to the apostles, laid it at their feet to give to the, to the poor and the needy within the church community, right? They saw this and they wanted to do something likewise, probably because they wanted some of that prestige that Barnabas had received from this. Everybody looked at Barnabas and said, wow, he's such a great Christian. And Ananias and Sapphira lusted after that. So they have property, they sell it, and they promise to give all of the funds to the church. Same as Barnabas, right? But they hold back a part of the money. 
And what happens? Peter confronts Ananias first. Ananias comes in and Peter says, did you sell the land for such and such an amount of money? And Ananias says, yes, I did. And Peter, sa Peter says, you lied against spirit. And what does God do? He kills him. He slays Ananias. Peter didn't do it. Peter didn't pick up a sword and chop his head off. But God did it. And then Sapphira comes in. And Peter asks her. And she says exactly the same thing. And Peter says, why have you conspired with your husband to lie to the Holy Ghost? And then what happens? She falls over dead. Okay? But what is the result in the text? In verse number 12. Actually, verse number 11. After Ananias and Sapphira have been slain, says, and great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. Everybody who knew this story was afraid, okay? It is one thing for us to preach that if you don't repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are going to hell and to spend an eternity. And that should put fear in people's hearts who do not know Jesus Christ. But when they see God deal with sin in the life of the church, that should put even greater fear in their lives. A lot of times people use the excuse that Christians are hypocrites. And that's tr it's probably true. I'm, but honestly, we're all hypocrites. <laughs> so everybody at Walmart's a hypocrite too. But if the, church, sorry, if the church would deal with sin and take it seriously though, great fear would come upon unbelievers because they would see how seriously God takes sin in the life of his people. And so there is great fear, and it says in verse 12, and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, to them, but the people magnified them. Verse 14, and believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. When you talk about multitudes, what picture comes to your mind? Uncountable numbers. Like, this is, this is explosive growth right here. Why? Because God dealt with sin in the church. So when the church wakes up and sees the sin that they have been harboring in their own lives and they deal with it, God can grow that church. Galatians 5 verse 9 says, A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Right? So a little bit of sin within the church has a, an effect to spread throughout the church when it is not dealt with. In uh, Galatians 5, verse 12, Paul says, I would they were even cut off which trouble you. There are false teachers who are coming in. They are teaching false doctrine. They are promoting false things. And the church hadn't dealt with it. And Paul's wishing that they would even be cut off which trouble them. So Paul was wishing that they would be removed from the church. What is that? Church discipline. When we deal with sin, we discipline. It produces church growth. Condoning evil in the church allows it to spread. And it forfeits the blessing of God on the church. Also, logically, think about it this way. If there's sin in the church, it becomes a blight on the reputation of the church. Okay? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as not so much as named even among the Gentiles, that one would have his own father's wife. Right? This was incest in the church. And everybody knew about it in the church and outside the church. It was commonly reported, okay? And it brought a blight on the name of the church. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 13 um, talks about this, says, but them that are without God judgeth, therefore put away from among you 
that wicked person. What's the solution? Get rid of them. <laughs> Discipline them out of the church. Yes, the goal is restoration, but you remove the sinner if he will not repent. So church discipline is an essential part of seeing God work and church growth accomplishing. When we take sin seriously, the results according to Acts chapter 5 are just that great fear comes on all the church and the lost. The apostles were magnified because of a better reputation. But then people got saved. Multitudes, both of men and women, were saved and added to the church. Now the fourth thing is a growing church, a growing church We'll have servant leaders. The next text that we see, and this will be our last point for the night, <clears throat> is Acts chapter number 6. Acts chapter number 6. It says, In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So the church has grown. It has had explosive growth. And there is a dispute. There's an issue where the, the widows of the Hebrews and the Grecians are not being taken care of equally and properly. So there's a fight between them, okay? And the apostles say, we can't stop studying and serve tables and take care of this issue. So what do they do? They appoint deacons, okay? They appoint deacons within the church to serve and to help out in this ministry. And notice these are supposed to be men of honest report and full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, okay? Now, verse number seven. What's the result of appointing the deacons within the church? And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So the word of God increased. This is logical, because uh, the apostles now have more freedom to preach, right? Because they're no longer having to worry about this issue of serving tables to the widows, they're freed up to preach. So the word of God increases, and it says the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem. Well, what is a disciple? It's a person who is, who's been saved, but it is more than that, right? A disciple is somebody who is saved, who follows Christ, and is being trained or taught everything that Christ has commanded. Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, you know these verses. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And literally that verse says, go ye therefore and make disciples of every nation. And what are we to do with those disciples? Teach them all things that I have commanded you, says Jesus. Okay? So a disciple is a person who is saved, follows Christ, and is being trained or taught everything that Christ has commanded. And so the disciples were multiplied. Notice the, the words before. We had addition. We had multitudes. We had a great many people added daily, right? But here we have multiplication. Well, why multiplication? What's, what's the difference here? I'm going to use an illustration, so I'm going to pull some of you guys up here just to illustrate this, okay? So I'm a preacher. Let's say Tim is a lost man who does not know Jesus Christ as his Savior. I come and I witness to Tim, he gets saved. 
and I take him. Tim, go ahead and come up. I'm just going to go ahead and take you, okay? <laughs> so Tim comes up. How many people do we have? Two. What have I done? I have added, okay? Now, I could keep him. You're a baby Christian. You're going to stay that way, okay? And then I go to Daniel, and I witness to him. He gets saved, and now, I, now he comes on up. What have I still done? Still addition, right? And I could keep on doing this till the day I die. How many people will I have up here? Who knows, okay? So, but let's say, let's say I do this. I have witnessed to Tim. He has accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. But now he is a disciple. And I train him to go and do what I have done. So now I go, and Tim goes. Tim, just grab somebody, okay? Andrew, come on up here. You're my guy. Okay, so <laughs> pastor's Tim's guy. Tim wanted the easy job. He, he didn't want to have to work too hard. So, okay. Okay, now what have I done? Made a big mistake. Made a big mistake, yeah. So I have multiplied, right? Because two times two equals what? Four, okay. That's what's going on in this church. Because you guys can go ahead and go back to your seats, okay? So, it, yes, okay. We're not going to multiply any more than that just because the platform will get pretty full up here. And I don't want you guys to take my message away from me and start preaching. So, okay. So, but it's multiplication. And what happens? It's exponential growth within the church. Why did that happen though? Deacons. Deacons happened. Deacons were godly, spirit-filled men. But you know what? What else do we know about these deacons? Philip, what did he do? Preached in Samaria, led a great revival. They also preached. They also taught. They weren't, they weren't just serving widows. You know, that's not what they were doing. What about Stephen? What do we know about Stephen? Another one of these, these deacons. What did he do? He preached, and what happened to him? <laughs> he died, okay? So he was the first martyr. But still, what did he do? He preached. Here you have an example of spirit-filled servant leaders. Again, these are deacons, servant leaders within the church who go and they train and they minister to other believers, and multiplication happens because now it's not just the apostles. Now it's not just the pastor. It's other men within the church. This is explosive growth because we are multiplying by training and discipling other believers in Christ and then setting them loose on the world to do exactly what we have done. And so that's how, those are the first four ways that we see growth within the book of Acts. And I think that that should be something that should encourage us and challenge us in the way that we approach church growth in, in our church. Numbers are not all important, but they are a symptom. You know, we need to be seeking God to do a mighty work within the church, to fill us with his spirit, to produce godly community within our churches, to deal with sin, and then to raise up other disciples within the church. And then God will grow. It may not be thousands of people like in the book of Acts, but God will do something because God is going to be faithful to those who are faithful to him. So I challenge you, with this, just with this idea that we not discount the whole idea of let's go out and win people to the Lord and let's see the church grow. Let's not discount it. Let's not throw it out there. My burden for this church, this, this is my burden right now. Uh, I just started, so I can't, I can't say we're accomplishing anything towards this goal yet. But this is my vision that we will reach someday 200 people in this church, which means this church will be filled. And pastor, you've been there before. 
This church has been there before. We know what it's like. And it was great days at Harvest Hills when we were, when we were at that point. But then I want to see us continue to grow, but to start another church, to reproduce ourselves. Because there aren't a whole lot of churches that are like us in Oklahoma City. Probably we're the only one, to be honest, okay? And yes, there are other good churches, but they aren't us. And we need to reproduce this. I mean, Luke's kids are awesome, but you know what? I like my kids. I want more of my kids. So, you know, I'm going to reproduce my, my kids and my, my people. I want to see God do that, and I want to see God do a work. That's the vision that I have for our, for our church. And I just pray that we'll, we'll passionately pursue that. Ultimately, it's in God's hands. But let's do, let's, let's grow. Let's be the people that God wants us to be, and let's, let's trust God to do something in the future. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll close our eyes, bow our heads. Carrie, if you don't mind coming to the piano. <clears throat> Let's just pray for the church tonight. Let's just pray that God will do a work in the future. That we, that we will be faithful to him, that we will proclaim his word. We will be filled with the spirit, which produces evangelism. It produces praising God. It produces the community life. And it produces us dealing with sin in our church, churches, right? But let's pray to God that he will do something and he will be glorified through this church. It's not about me. It's not, about, it's not even about our church. It's about God and his glory and that his name would be spread through other people. So let's go ahead and just spend some time praying to the Lord for that. Brother Schrader, do you mind closing us in prayer tonight?